0: And I'm Matt. We're the NC Wine Guys.
1: Welcome to our second episode of Cork Talk.
0: In this episode, we visit with Hanover Park Vineyard in Yadkinville, North Carolina, to sit down with Michael and Amy Hilton.
1: Michael and Amy are pioneers in the wine industry in North Carolina. They planted the first vinifera vineyard in Yadkin County and opened its first winery in what was then a dry county.
0: We were also joined by Pearl, Michael and Amy's Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. She is the official mascot of Hanover Park and even has her name on a bottle of dry rosé.
1: So sit back, pour a glass, and listen.
0: We're here with Michael and Amy Helton of Hanover Park Vineyards. Michael, Amy, thank you very much for being here with us today.
2: Happy to be here.
0: Our pleasure.
1: So, I guess we, we always try to start the, the podcast as we're as uh, trying to introduce folks to the local wine here in North Carolina by having you tell your story. So talk to us a little bit about how you ended up here in Yadkin County and why you wanted to have a winery
2: and a vineyard. Well, it all started in 1996 after a honeymoon in the south of France. Michael and I were there almost a month. Um, By trade, we were both art teachers and artists, and we came home and we decided that we wanted to start a winery. At that time, there were 10 in the whole state of North Carolina. Our friends thought we were crazy. <laughs> and um, we would get in the car and just take a drive. We'd live in Winston-Salem, and we would just drive west out 421. But we would find too much land, not enough land, too close to the river. Nothing was exactly right. And then one day, Michael went out driving to find a piece of property by himself, and it was pre-cell phone days, and he came home and said, I found it. And that changes
3: everything. It was not the place I was looking for, Hmm. but I saw a realtor's sign in this property that was an abandoned farm, and up to this point, we had come across 100 acres for very little money per acre, or... Five, eight acres would be nice for a horse. Or 25 to 30 acres, which would be excellent, but it was at the intersection of two major highways and they wanted uh, a fortune per acre. So this is the first time we actually found a small 23 acres at that point. So, what is it that drew you to this location?
0: What were you looking for in the ideal site?
3: It'd be difficult to tell you that I knew what I was doing. Oh, that's fair. The pioneering spirit. Yes. Uh, I was basically looking for land uh, of a certain size Mm. and a certain price. I wanted some angle, some slope. I knew enough about that that the frost is like water. It will run downhill. Mm. So you do not want to be in the valley. Other than that, I had no idea it's of what I was looking for and what I needed to find. 20 minutes
2: from our house, which was an important factor. We didn't want to have to drive a long time to get to it because you know you'd have to be out there a lot.
3: Mm-hmm. We still had our teaching jobs, and we're going to continue for a while. teaching. So a 20-minute drive was much better than an hour or an hour and a half. We had a...
2: four forty
3: five. 45. Yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. But we also realized that we didn't want to go east or south because of weather. Um, we were more interested and knew a little bit enough to know that the higher the elevation, perhaps the better it might be. What little we knew at that time, we learned a great deal since mm-hmm. then.
1: So was, was this the first vinifera
2: vineyard in, in Yakton County that was planted? Oh, yeah. yes. Yes. And this was a totally dry county when we bought our land.
3: I was not sure we could open a vineyard and have sell alcohol in a dry county, so I called Raleigh. The lady there very quickly said that when they repealed prohibition, they gave the right to regulate to each state. So in, in one way, there's 50 different countries. Mm. But in the other side, the state was in charge, and she said, no county is in charge of my revenue. So if they give you a problem in that county, you let me know that's against the law, and I will take care of it.
0: Hmm.
3: So I, I hadn't even man. found land, and she was already taking possession of my, <laughs> my excise tax. And I thought, okay. So we continued to look at various counties, and then this happened to be a dry county. And we like it. The first couple years we planted the vineyard, two acres in the first year, Two more in the second year.
2: 97 and 98.
3: I never, dis- and it was an abandoned farm, it hadn't really been used since the early 60s. Mm-hmm. So the local neighbors were glad to see a farm was being revitalized. I'm curious and in the discussions with them i never mentioned wine i didn't know what reception i might receive so yeah, i just sense. i'm planting grapes oh yes so what was here then when before you planted
0: so you mentioned it was farmland so were there buildings already on the site did you have to clear off places tell us a little bit about that well
2: where we're sitting now is our tasting room and this is a farmhouse that was built in 1897 mm-hmm no one had lived here since 63 when we bought the land the end of 96 oh wow so the front door was sitting open um it was something else no (laughs) no indoor plumbing the outhouse was right out back here there was another little building out back which had a shelf in it and that shelf is our bar in the front room um it it was a different experience the We call it Deborah's Barn. That's still here. In the beginning, it had many uses. There was another barn, which we finally took down, that was out in the field right here. Um, We built the winery, and eventually we acquired the studio, which is at the far end of the property.
3: Okay. Those two steps were over a 20-year period. Mm -hmm. The winery initially was here in the... Right where we're sitting. Yes. Mm -hmm. Oh, wow. Yeah. And as we grew, we expanded slowly. We, at one point, were making wine in this room, and then we were actually making wine in the next room, and we were storing cases here where we're seated. And then then we stored barrels in here for a little while. Then we built on a little bit more to the building, and it just kept expanding, um, but very slowly. Mm.
1: So you mentioned the first two acres were planted in, in 1997. Correct. Correct. What were the varieties that you planted that, in those first two acres?
3: My first two varieties were Chardonnay, because it was the most popular white <laughs> at that time, and I think maybe still is, and Franc. Cabernet Franc. Hmm. Ironically, I had never drank wine until we went on our honeymoon. Really. So I knew nothing about wine at all, uh, but I, was, I enjoyed European wine. It's very food-friendly and very nice and soft and very uh, very likable. I discovered that I preferred Franc better than I did Cabernet Sauvignon, mm-hmm. just slightly. So I thought, okay, the first acre of red will be a Cab Franc. And then the second year... We planted an acre of Cabernet Sauvignon because it is, and was at that point, the number one red. Mm-hmm. And we put in Chambourcin, which is an East Coast silver bullet because it grows no matter whether it's Loves drought, or climate. Oh, yeah. whether it's a drought or rain, it doesn't matter. It will grow the <coughs> same. And it's an open, uh, loose cluster. It's nice and airy. So Shamberson seemed like a, a very good silver bullet at the end. So we put Chambourcin in. Excellent.
2: And Your favorite, (laughs) (laughs)
3: the
2: the Muvenga, and some Syrah, Syrah. We
3: we had several rows. At that time, there was no universities working with the grapes in North Carolina, and I didn't know if there ever would be. I didn't know if there would ever be another vineyard and winery after us. So I'm a researcher at heart, so I, I put in several rows of different kinds of varieties, and I put in several rows of different types of trellising, the whole trying to here. learn. <laughs> Behind the house here, uh, that that acre was an experiment. At least half of that acre was an experiment to see what would work and what wouldn't work.
0: So you mentioned trellising. It's one of your unique features here. So tell us a little <laughs> bit about why you chose to go your route.
3: Well, initially I <laughs> discovered we have way too much vigor mm-hmm. in there's no one that I know of now that there's so many vineyards. I never heard anyone complain that they had not enough vine- not enough vigor in their <laughs> vineyard. There's way too much nitrogen in our soil. Um, so I, through the years, tried different things, different types of trellising to eliminate some of that vigor. A technical aspect of pruning, I'll, let me delve into that for just a moment, if you prune off in the winter all of your wood that you're getting rid of, the the canes that are coming off, and you weigh it, it should indicate to you how vigorous that vine is. That's sort of a common sense thing that allows you to then figure how many clusters of grapes it would support. Then on the other side, Considering the airflow, wants to you want the vineyard the trellising to be open, you want the shoots to be maybe six inches apart from each other, so that there's good airflow. Now, each shoot being six inch apart, and you've got something spaced eight feet apart, will allow you to have another X number of clusters. On one way to figure it, you needed 60 clusters. On the, another way to figure it, you needed 20 clusters. I realized from the beginning my vines were way out of balance. Hmm. I had way too much vegetation, uh, more than I ever needed. I needed more fruit in order to balance that vegetation, and there was no way to do it on an eight-foot canopy. So it began to be an experiment. And eventually, I realized I was going to pull every third row out. Oh, wow.
2: That's what he did up here with the cat. Yes.
3: Okay. And then take that vine and come across to another line, a row of line posts, four feet apart. Hmm. So I took and essentially still kept my nine-foot row from my tractor, but now my canopy, instead of having eight foot of... Canopy it had 16 feet of canopy Hmm. and the vine was better in balance and that allowed me to come to this decision here So you landed on the the lyre system then yes, I did perfect and having to be a retrofit I already had one row of lines posts there So I just put in another set of line posts rather than taking everything out and then putting those (laughs) Uh, y-shaped things that are liars traditionally used for liars and at that point i realized that when i planted new i would do the same thing i would put two rows of line posts in four feet apart instead of having a three foot spacing between the two rows with the traditional configuration it's Easier when you look at it to see what I'm talking about. <laughs> yeah, for the well, listeners,
0: it's very difficult to kind of picture it in your head unless you know exactly what you're talking about. Yes.
1: Yeah, so we'll try to get some pictures out there so folks can see. And I'm sure there's some on your your mm-hmm. website and on your social media pages. So mm-hmm. uh, it is a it is an interesting s- system. Not too many people have that here in North Carolina, no. but but a number of people do do some variations on trellising because of the weather, the humidity. Get, trying to get that airflow in, into the vines mm-hmm. and the grapes and the bunches, so that's important. So, at, you both mentioned you mentioned you're both former art teachers. So, talk a little bit about how art plays into how plays into Hanover Park, and how is it important? Um, there's various aspects that I I can think of, but I'd like to hear what what you, your perspectives
2: are. Well, I think it's just part of who we are, and you can't hide who you are. I always tell people, I know this, they say, well, this is not like other wineries. And I said, well, that's, that's good. I said, this is who we are, and I think that art background mixed with the business, mixed with the teaching experiences that we've had, create this. I don't know how else to put it into words. You just have to see it and feel it when you come in. And people, they comment about that. So.
3: I worked as an artist for about 19 years, uh, supporting myself. I also taught art at the university, and then at, later at high school. Art is, a no matter what style of art you're doing, it is a matter of making decisions about what you are building. You put something down, and then you put something else with it, and then there's a reaction. To either how you make decisions does this work or does it not work and so you're continually making decisions as you do art and it's a very much of a complex decision-making process when you start to cook and not use a recipe I think you're using the same ability You begin to think about what you're tasting, what does it need, oh, too much of this, not enough of that. Uh, So you begin to alter and change it until you have it right. When you start making wine, blending wine, it's the same thought process. So as an artist, I'm doing liquid art. I'm mixing things together that at first you would think would go together, these two barrels and those two things, and then you put it, and it's like, no, yeah. you've got to alter it a little bit, or you've got to pull one back and put something else in, and it's that same decision-making process. I think that's true in so many walks of life, engineers, building projects. It's the same way. You put certain things down and, oh, this isn't going to work. All right, we, what we've got to do is bring this in then and do that. So in most people's lives, they are continually making decisions. I always told my students, trust your instincts. Mm. And you have to do that when you yeah. blend wine.
0: So, Michael, as the winemaker, what what's your goal? What's your end product goal? What are you trying
3: to make? Make, make the best wine with what I'm given from that year. For that vintage, okay, uh, we make two major reds, three major reds, counting Chamberson, But one of them is the Mauvedra mm-hmm. with Syrah, Grenache, Cinsault, and Carignan, which are two obscure grapes. Each of them brings a little something to the table, and then I put another group together with Cabernet Franc, Cabernet Sauvignon. Merlot, Malbec, and Petit Verdot. The nice part about those two groups, if I have a very, very hot year, my Mouvedre and its other colleagues do very well. If it's not quite as hot, my Cabernet, Franck, and Merlot, Syrah, Malbec will do very well. So I'm in a way hedging my bet that and in a ideal situation, both of them will do well. Chamberson does well no matter what you throw at it. <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. It's very true.
1: So we have we talked about you planted the first vinifera vineyard in, in Yadkin County. Uh, there were only 10 wineries in the state when you opened, so that would kind of classify you guys as pioneers in the wine industry in, in North Carolina. When we were with uh, Chuck and Diana Jones mm-hmm. a few weeks ago, they mentioned that, in, in fact, in talking with you talking about you. So how does that feel? Do you feel like you're a pioneer? Um, And if so, what type of mentoring or coaching have you been able to provide to other folks in the wine industry?
2: Well, I can't tell you how many people have sat in that front room picking our brains. One, I guess, because we're the teachers. Two, they're investing a, a lot, both money and time and everything to create a winery so over the years michael has taught classes at surrey before surrey had their department and people would basically just come in here and just watch because there was really there where were you going to go to do that right in this neck of the woods i have certain people follow me when i was taking people on a tour uh another at the time when we had a cash register that made noise before the POS system, you know, one gentleman I remember after somebody left said, oh, I feel so good to hear that cash register. It makes me feel like there's hope for us eventually. So, you know, you don't realize sometimes where you are. One time at an event in Yaking County, a gentleman came up to us, this was years ago, and he said, this is all your fault. And I said, Excuse me, I didn't know him very well and he said, All these wineries here are all because of the two of you. And I thought I took a deep breath and looked around and felt in some ways that's a big responsibility, you know, saying, Well, they had the freedom to do this or not, because we would we get blamed a lot that it's our fault. (laughs) And but he said, Well, look at what you've created. And, you know, we don't think of it that way. We just, in the morning, we just say, well, okay, I'm heading out to the farm. That's what we call this. Um, But to others, they, they look at it in a different light. And to this day, we have people, I had an email yesterday, I'm sending someone your way today. We've been talking about you. We want them to come. So for us, that word of mouth is more precious than anything because it comes from a personal
3: note. In the very beginning, probably the first dozen or two wineries, vineyard wineries, startups, came over here. And I always advocated that as well. If you want to start this, don't just go start immediately. Find someone that's similar to what you want to accomplish, the size or something. And at that point, we were the only one. Go out and work with them. It's a seasonal thing. It takes a year to go all the way through. And sometimes you'll be doing something in the middle of the winter that you won't really comprehend why, fully comprehend why, until maybe early spring or mid-summer. And I would say there was 20 so people that would work with me off and on, maybe two or three times a a week for a year, year and a half, two years before they started. The gentleman that sat in the front corner, I think, was over off and on for two years, and now he has a very nice, large, established vineyard and winery, and, and uh, it's the same is true with everyone. The funny part was that one gentleman, I told him what it was going to be, but he was not from a farming background. Um, his work was more of a different blue collar or I mean white collar <laughs> job and I kept warning him for a year and a half two years he would work with me and he finally started planting and it was a little wet that spring he came in drove in he had clay all over <laughs> his everywhere,
2: his, everywhere
3: face hands and everything and he drove up and he Lowered the window, and he just looks at me and he said, I hate you. <laughs> I said, I told you.
2: <laughs> I closed the window, came inside, had a glass of wine. <laughs> you know, but that was, that would happen.
3: A few folks did consulting, and I never could figure out how to charge for that. We're school teachers. Um, we take an interest, I guess, in telling people more than they ever wanted to know. Mm-hmm. And that tended in the very beginning, especially me. She points to me and says, yes, I agree. (laughs) But that was our job. We have always, for some reason, felt the need to help build this industry. I was asked to replace someone on the North Carolina Wine and Grape Council then, Department of Agriculture, and I did that for, I think, seven or eight years. Mm Consequently, since I was doing that side, I did not get as involved with the wine and grape count. uh, The North
2: Carolina Wine Growers Association. Association,
3: Which is a member's organization that's dedicated to education. Whereas the other uh, Department of Ag, we had a financial budget and was very instrumental in getting research started, advertising started, whatever we could do to build the industry in the beginning. And now. It's, and then later, Amy replaced me on the board, and my work here at the Vineyard and Winery became more and more uh, involved. And I had to do the, uh, turn loose of some obli- obligations and responsibilities. So you can delegate responsibility, but our authority, but you can't delegate responsibility.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: And so I felt the same way when I had to quit teaching. Uh, I wasn't doing either job as well as i should i tend to get very involved with whatever i do i I don't know that i get very focused and i don't know that i've ever tried to do anything halfway um sometimes i wished i could (laughs) well now you both have
0: mentioned you know really helping to form and shape what the industry is today both through the wine growers association the the grape council what takeaway did you have from that like what do you think is what did it mean to you to be able to take part in both of those organizations
2: well i've been on the board of the wine growers association a long time yesterday i talked to one of our past presidents on the phone and it's exciting we just had our meeting last week and you guys were there also to speak which we appreciate to educate people to see what's happening both in tasting of wine, talking about wine, talking about growing grapes, no matter what kind of grapes you grow. Doesn't have to be a muscadine, a vinifera, or a hybrid. Just to be able to discuss what we do in this industry. And a lot of people have no idea what it's, what it's like unless they really spend that time, like Michael was just saying, and follow you around, which we get those people that do. The Association to me we we enjoy our annual meeting it's a fun time to relax get together the vendors come you see what's going on a lot of times you're here at your own winery and you don't really get that time to go visit or go taste somebody else's wine you two do, but we don't because we're here right and that's a big you know that's a big difference um, the Grape Council deals with the politics of wine, how money that is given to the state or to the wine industry from the state is used. So for us in that respect, that's a different, you meet in Raleigh, you meet in Greensboro, you deal with politicians, you try to inform them of how important and how much money this industry really does give to the state in jobs for people, Tourism to me is a big thing of what the Great Council shows us and we work with a lot of the local CBDs and that helps a lot.
3: I think I see it as an obligation. I don't think of it as something that promotes me as much as I see and often feel where I meet people that want to do something, and I know somebody else who could facilitate and help them in that. My job, I feel like, is getting those two people together and then get out of the way. It's like to your roots of being a teacher and educator.
0: You want to put the people in connection, help them learn, help them move them forward. That's kind of the essence of who
3: you are. And then they can solve their own problems. When I was actually teaching folks how to run a vineyard, and... It's decision-making, and I would give them the information about why I made certain decisions and then the variation on it for another situation and another situation, so that hopefully their takeaway would be has nothing to do with a recipe. It has to do with the ability to solve problems that are given to them. But in the state and the uh, larger level, I enjoy putting people together. If... I had any kind of a contribution to the things that have occurred in this industry in the state then i'm pleased and happy but i don't think about it that way i think of it as i'm here step up to the plate you have an obligation if you can help people do so
1: sharing your knowledge sharing your know-how and yeah getting out of the way that's what a teacher does yes. so. <laughs> yeah makes sense makes sense um let's kind of go back and talk a little bit more about varieties and wines and that sort of thing um talk about your your style of wine your style of wine making the wine that you produce here it is different than, than other places so talk about that and what makes why is it that important the style you do here why is it important to you
3: When we came back from our honeymoon, I had discovered, after a month of being over there, I I had a bad habit. I loved wine. (laughs) But buying a couple bottles of wine turned out to be Australian and California. It was an acquired taste, is the only way I can explain it. Uh, To our palate. I didn't care for it. And I eventually began to realize that I was going to have to make what I liked, I didn't set out to do this when we came back. I set out to volunteer at some wineries, and in, in, of which at the time there were only one in local that was making vinifera. Everyone else was muscadine or, or fruit wines or things like this. So as I began to do this, we returned to Europe, and on our honeymoon, we were just—I uh, and and Amy were just wine and, uh, drinkers. But, when we returned, we actually now had a vineyard and a winery, it was small at that time, but that was we had started that put us into a different group of tourists I would still say, and one particular winery took us under their wing. the winemaker did, and the family, and began to give us some information uh, Bandeau Tampier fantastic wine made in the south of france and that's where we continue to go into the south of france but if we can we always try to go visit at bandeau Tampier, and so i study there i've been studying there for 20 years about winemaking and thinking about making that type of wine consequently over a few years I slowly was able to keep my wine back in barrels longer before I would bottle it. I discovered that there was something that occurred in the third to the fourth year that not every year, but when it does occur, it is something that would never occur in a bottle, I don't believe. Mm that certain things change. Merlot by itself can be a little fruity, nice finish, good middle, pleasant nose but really lacks structure, not a, not a great deal of backbone. Somewhere in the third or fourth year you might want to bring a steak knife when you want to taste your Merlot. It has developed as a backbone. <laughs> And the same is true with some of the other wines. Well, what you, I obviously I learn in hindsight so much. Uh, I'm not all that knowledgeable of what I'm doing, but I tried to read everything I could get my hands on. But I have discovered that I'm by keeping the wine, I am softening the tannins, and it develops into a wine that is more like a European style of wine.
2: We found that when we were on our honeymoon, before we went on our honeymoon. Any place that we would dine, living in Winston-Salem in 1996, it was difficult to, when you'd go to a restaurant, to find a mouvedre. And we were in Nobles in Winston, and we told that we were going on our honeymoon in in the summertime, and we wanted to try only wines from the South. He said, I have something, you have to try it. And he brings over a bottle from Domaine Tompier. You couldn't go look on your phone and look it up. <laughs> we finished that bottle of wine, said, oh my goodness, we have to go here. We went home, we opened the Michelin map, found that town, and said, we are going here. I still have that bottle at home. Mm-hmm. In fact, after 20 years, we went to Nobles for our anniversary. I had a bottle from the, the winery, and I brought the original one that we had from them. So, oh, wow. Of course, they... Didn't charge us the corkage fee <laughs> that night, and it is just something that when we taste it, it's special. There is that earthiness to it, you know. I think I always tell people here: lamb, beef, cheese. I think of herbs de Provence. I think of the lavender, the lavande. Bon. It's just a different taste and a different aroma. I tell people this is not a calf. Everything has to be based around a cab sometimes. Mm -hmm. And what is this like? It's not like anything else. It has its own aroma. The nose goes from where the grapes are. Um, The first year that we harvested, we had one row of Nivedra right out here, and... Deborah and I came out after school. We sat on the five-gallon buckets because it was on <laughs> the lyre system. So she sat on one side and I sat on the other, and we moved our buck our seats as well as the five-gallon buckets down. Muvetta <laughs> is a beautiful, large bunch of grapes. Um, it likes heat, and you know some summers then we get lots of good heat. That first time we made it, it was, wow. Now we know that our wine is not going to taste like a, a vine that's 60, 80 years old. But we can enjoy it and people say, Well, where are these vines from? And I just point to the back. Because that's where they are from. Yes, the if you were in Spain, it would be monastrell. But here we like to call it Mevedre. Hmm.
3: Which is what the French call right, it. Right. Right. It is a minor or middle blending grape in the Rhone, uh, Grenache being the predominant, and then Syrah, and then Mauvedre, and then dozens of, I think, other things, but in Bandeau, it was required after the Second World War, they were rebuilding their industry, because one of the things that occurred then was that a lot of the Germans were buying as much and exporting back to Germany French wine. The valuable products that the french had were enormous and they tried to maintain their industry so they were rewriting some of the appellations rules at the uh, they had that opportunity and in bandeau the gentleman who was doing that was lucien Perrot
2: owner of domain pompier
3: this was his family's vineyard and winery which we didn't know at first we were stepping into <laughs> behind and trying to follow legends around. uh. But the important part for us is to try, and the vineyard is trying to grow grapes that... The vines themselves don't always grow well if it's wet. And so I keep replanting and when it's a good hot year, I get excellent Muvedra and Syrah being the two biggest parts of the, the blend. I'm trying to look for earthiness and what can it take to do that. Uh, My barrels I keep for four years, I've mentioned. In some, now, up to six years, seven years. I use older, neutral barrels because I don't want that enormous amount of brand new oak to influence the wine. I want each variety to taste the way it should rather than trying to manipulate it. I don't want to make a universal wine. I want to make a wine that is true to Muvedra, that is true to itself. And that's part of just my philosophy.
1: So another um, varietal that you have as well is Vignet. Yes. Um, talk about Viognier. Most folks uh, tell us that it's fickle in the vineyard, um, difficult to grow, uh, but you seem to consistently produce a Viognier. So let's t- talk about that a little bit.
3: It is a little bit. Uh, my yields vary from year to year. I'll have a good year, then not a good year, and then a good year, and then not a good year. But the vine itself is grows very easily. You just don't always get the fruit each year. And there are some folks in Virginia that do a, a good job with Viognier in Northern Virginia. And I've entered, I've found out some of the things that they do that's differently, that they do differently. And I've been trying to increase my yield. And I do some years when I should be getting a poor crop, I'm actually getting a decent halfway crop. Mm. So I'm continuing to... It's one of those things you have to work with. <laughs> yeah, right. But I do find I like what I can get from Viognier. Uh, I have also planted a little... To go with the Viognier, I have planted a little bit of Marsan and Roussan. And now the Marsan will add a little bit of middle to the taste... And the Roussan will give a little bit of extra fruit to the taste. So I just have a small amount of each that goes with the uh, the Viognier. I will do so. It's the only white that I actually do a little blending with.
0: Hmm.
3: So now your your style of
0: Viognier is different than other vineyards as well. So how would you what would you say your style
3: is for the Viognier? One thing I don't do is put it in oak. Okay. And I did that initially because I didn't have any extra, in the very, very beginning, I didn't have any extra oak barrels. <laughs> so I just left it in the stainless, Stainless, and it tasted fine. And I didn't real, of course, being the first one out, uh, it was a number of years before the people started doing Bionier. And it was a number of years then before I realized that some people put it in oak for a little while and some even fermented in oak. I tasted some of those and it tasted just like a barrel fermented Chardonnay to me. So I wasn't interested in doing that. One of the things that I realized in the beginning was that my reds were unique, but I dismissed my whites. Hmm. Because... A red, I keep for years, and I can manipulate the temperature that I fermented at and everything. White, I just bring it in, get it ready, and bottle it before the next year. I found that some of my friends who were very serious wine people all corrected my thinking when they told me that, no, your Viognier and your Chardonnays are also unique from others and I thought I don't do anything differently so I began to think about it and investigate I have a soil book from 1952 that indicates what I have here is a male dense soil it's a sandy loam not clay hmm. there are little pockets here and there up clay but predominantly my vineyard is a sandy loam in that soil book, I began to analyze what was going on in other parts of the county. It ends, this mail den ends in within a half a mile to one mile away. It's
2: right here. Oh, wow. the, it's, right. it's this little we'll pocket. Show you that sometime.
3: It's this little pocket. I keep thinking I need to dig up some of the soil and make soil. <laughs> bo- a little Stratus. Yeah. yeah.
1: Something like that would be cool. <laughs> little
3: plexiglass boxes to show the soil. But it is different. It is different from other people's uh, soils. (sighs) If I had only known. (laughs) I had no idea when I found this property. The things that I I was falling into. Mm -hmm. The the good things I was falling into. It goes back
2: to the word right, Mm Right. And you have to deal with here.
3: It's It's everything. People have asked sometimes, what can you produce here? And that was another reason. I never wanted to buy grapes from... Anyone that that was in another state Or another part of the United States. I wanted to know what we could do here That's the other reason I didn't want to have enormous amounts of heavy oak a brand new oak Influencing my wine. I wanted to know what I could do here, and it reminded me of that uh, The Clint Eastwood movie is the good the bad and the well I added the indifferent <laughs> I wanted to know whether it be if could it very easily have been bad or indifferent wine but I was hoping for good. But I wanted to be true to discover what we could do here in this soil.
0: Excellent. So what would you say you've learned over the years of being in this business, being in this industry? In I mean, what
2: aspect? <laughs> <laughs> as, as, it's not just, it, it's, as it's not just one thing. Mm-hmm. You know, you tell people, you grow grapes, you make wine, you package that wine. Oh, and then you have to sell that wine.
0: What so movie? let's take it on like two fronts. And so Let's talk about like the wine making, the grape growing side, and then the whole sales marketing
3: side of it. If anyone now in the last 10 years has been interested in doing this, I tell them to run. <laughs> Keep their day job. For a very specific reason, and I try to discourage, I seriously try to discourage them. They need to have an absolute total passion. And the one example I give is this. You are pruning during the wintertime. You know how fast you're pruning. You happen to check the calendar and realize that at the rate that you're able to prune, you will finish pruning all of your vineyard three weeks after bud break. Oh, no, That's not going to cut it. So when it rains, four inches of rain during the day, you don't stop. You put on all the rain gear and you go out there and you keep pruning. And if there's six inches of snow on the ground, it doesn't matter at dawn. You go out there and you stay until dawn until it you lose the light. You have to finish the pruning no so at that moment, I tell people, if you're in the middle of all this weather and you're working and you're going, "What on earth did I decide to do? Why am I out here?" <laughs> Most sane people would run for the hills, and that's what you should do. But if you have the passion, if down deep you still have that passion to do this, that's the only thing that's going to save you and keep you out there. So you better have the passion before you start, or it will just tear you to pieces. That's great advice. It really is.
0: I mean, some people get into it not knowing what it takes. Yeah, it's the whole and it's really, it's a labor of love. You need
3: that passion yeah. or to take you there. It's a lifestyle. And most of the time, it's a wonderful lifestyle, but there are times it's not. So you better be prepared for that.
1: <laughs> and weather has a lot to do with that.
3: So.
0: Oh, yes. Mm-hmm.
3: So Amy, that's the one thing you can't control. Amy, on the side of the, the marketing, the
0: customer interaction side, what do you say you've learned on that piece of it?
2: One, you never judge the book by its cover. Mm-hmm. Someone walks in... Don't make any assumptions about who they are, their knowledge about wine, their lack of knowledge about wine. That's been, I think, both a fun part of what we do because people come from all over. Some people will come in and expect that because we're out here in the country that we don't know what we're talking about. That's not true. Some people come in with I ain't never been in no winery before, so my job is to teach them. Makes them a better consumer, and it makes them have a good time.
3: Make them feel comfortable.
2: Yes, that's all part of it.
3: Mm, in great. the very beginning, when we opened up, we had people that came in that knew enormous uh, about information about French wine and Italian wines, and more than I'll ever know in my lifetime. But they had never been in a winery. Oh, so they mm-hmm. didn't know the etiquette. And they felt a little uncomfortable. Well, 101.
2: <laughs> that's what we did. Or you'd get someone that would walk in and say, I'd say, well, do you like dry wines or sweet wines? And they would have this sort of <laughs> foggy look. And that's when you knew they had no idea what you were talking about. So that Eight we would percent. look at each other behind the counter and say, okay, today's wine, 101. <laughs> by the end of the tasting, they knew the difference between a dry wine and a sweet
3: one. Oh, there's not a wet wine? <laughs> well, they might have yeah. that. You're helping people feel comfortable and have a good time. Mm-hmm. We've never altered from that kind of thinking. It's just who we are. I don't think either one of us has ever met a stranger. I may have maybe 30 years ago one time. <laughs> but...
1: Mm-hmm. so talk about wine club and how important mm-hmm. that is to your business and again full disclosure we are members of the wine club here So that's true
2: and how many years have you guys been in the wine club
1: uh, five or six I yeah, guess I think about okay. five yeah
2: and right there that goes away from the standards of wine clubs which when you read literature it's in trade papers it will say wine club mm. people usually go 18 months give or take well, we just had a family that came in early because they came to pick up their wine club, and they've been in the wine club over 12 years. One of our first well, much longer than that. I yeah, think. probably longer. And we've been open 18 and a half years now. So we started the wine club three or four years after we opened. We had to make sure we had enough wine. But our wine club is very simple. Every other month, people come pick up their two bottles, which I choose. February is the month, so this weekend I know we'll be busy with people coming in. You get a 15% discount on those two bottles. And then we also offer different events for wine club members, usually dinners and Other activities that wine club members can
3: participate in and twice a year we take care of everything
2: that's what I was saying
3: (laughs) well we have other events for the wine club don't we I don't really know much about anything that happens up here (laughs) I'm not allowed up here now that they've switched from that old cash register to (laughs) the POS system I can't touch anything that's a good blooper section so, Amy, tell us a little bit about what makes your wine club special.
2: I think our wine club members like getting that the red and the white. And This month, we do have two red wines, and we try to use our dry wines, except we do like to throw in the port or the vin d'orange during holiday times or special times. But our people know that when they come in here... It's like home. They come in. One of my, one of our regulars, he knows. He goes in the back. He gets the old Riedel glasses out. <laughs> I already have the bottle of wine open by the time he comes in. Somebody who's new doing a tasting will say, how do you know what he wants? I, said, well, I know when he walks in what he's going to want to drink. And they just look and say, oh, okay. And I think that just sort of is a synopsis of how it goes. Most people... Just enjoy coming, whether they're coming to buy extra wine, whether they're just coming to sit out and have a picnic or bring a piece of cheese and some crackers with them and just enjoy a bottle of wine with their babies, their four-legged babies. You know, it's, it's just a time and a place that you can just relax. And that's the part I think people really enjoy. And the camaraderie and the travel we have started, too. That's been a fun aspect of the club.
1: They're getting to know and kind of that sense of community uh, around, because there's a, that common thing is wine, but it's
2: also becoming friends and
1: interacting
2: mm-hmm. and, and that sort of thing. Think of all the different people you've gotten to know absolutely by coming here. Mm-hmm. Most of the ladies that come help me here in the tasting room are wine club members. They just came. they come as wine club members and ended up enjoying being here and said, I'll come help. And that's sort of how it's evolved, and that's a nice thing, because they know our wine. They can learn the point-of-sale system.
1: <laughs> so we'd be remiss to, um, if we didn't mention the official mascot of Hanover Park, who's, who's sleeping, behind, sleeping behind us. She's been around today. So talk about a little bit about Pearl, and Pearl has her own wine. She's on the Rosé yes.
2: label. So talk about
1: her and what impact she has on Hanover Park. Well,
2: Pearl just turned 11 and a half. And people expect to see her. When she lost her hearing a few years ago and she didn't greet someone at the door, they were very upset that, where's Pearl? Why isn't she here? I said, she just didn't hear you come in anymore. (laughs) She still will go up and meet most people at the door. Um, She's a little, she's our Cavalier King Charles Spaniel. She's our special little girl. And... She does have a wine that's named after her, and we're waiting for Michael to get that one ready for us. Because it's a dry rosé, which sort of fits her, and she's on the label, the only label that has the doggy picture, and it just fits her. The Pearl. And People just love coming to see her. Many people have gotten cavaliers because of her.
1: But don't feed Pearl when you're here. But don't feed
2: Pearl. Thank
0: you. So what has left the biggest impacts over the years on each of
2: you? For me, it's being here and all the people that we meet. We like to say we have friends from everywhere. We we have friends that you know, all different types of friends that we've met. And it's not... You know, as a teacher, you're in a school, you have your parents, and you have your kids. This is very different. And
3: every, every walk of life gets involved with wine, I think. Mm-hmm. And it cuts across all kinds of uh, social barriers, um, economical barrier. Everyone, when they start talking about wine, there's a camaraderie. Mm-hmm. That exists that I've not experienced in any other field or profession.
2: We have um, <clears throat> the boys, not you guys, but the other boys <laughs> that come to see us. They haven't been in as much. They um, their looks can be very deceiving. And one time when they a blo- someone had been writing a blog, and afterward they said these two guys came on their motorcycles and they ordered a bottle of cold viognier it just didn't fit <laughs> and we always laugh about that because that goes back to that looks can be yes. deceiving yeah, you make an assumption covers. about someone and who they are and what they like and
3: you know one of the that's not how they are one of the two guys enjoys Movedra hmm. and drinks a great deal of different Movedras from everywhere and and the spanish call monastrell there was another gentleman who's in a in a suit, white shirt, tie, uh a very dignified gentleman, who also was in and loves Movedra, and the two of them got to talking. The gentleman's the I suit. should have
2: taken a picture Yeah,
3: his <laughs> wife eventually looks over and she said I'm never going to get those two apart they had gotten over and started talking about various movedras oh have you tried this oh yes I have Well, but that introduced such and such and then in any other circumstance I'm not sure they would have even right. given Pass. each other the right. time mm-hmm. of day but there they had a universal friendship based upon a wine mm.
2: well it's like It's the same as when you come to the wine club party. For Michael and I, we know pretty much everybody in our wine club, Mm -hmm. and I always get a kick out of seeing who ends up sitting with whom at the dinner because, oh, that's good. (laughs) And you know that these people from different places should meet together and and should have that experience of sharing food and wine together.
3: One time there was a couple that had... Made this comment off just off the cuff that they apparently were careful when they go to various other functions about where they sat or who they sat with, but the comment was, "Oh, it doesn't matter where we sit here. We're going to enjoy everybody we meet."
1: <laughs> that's a, that's a a good statement about the folks that are that keep, that frequent your establishment and are a part of your wine club. So. Um, so what, what is the, what's something that you thought would happen by owning a winery and vineyard that hasn't? And then maybe what's something that has that you didn't expect?
3: Well, initially, I thought we would continue to grow. The first year, I think we did 375 cases or something like that. And then the second year... 1,000. Yeah, right at 1,000. And then about 1,800... Then the fourth year, I think it was, I thought we were doing about 2,100, 2,200 cases, and I never quite understood why I was so exhausted. <laughs> until at the end, you don't, it's like playing cards, you never count your winnings until it's over. At the end of the harvest, I go through and have to register everything and uh, get everything ready for the, well, then the former BATF. At that point, I realized I, was, I had done what would be equivalent to about 2,800 cases. And I thought we would just continue to get bigger and bigger and bigger. And that didn't materialize, thank goodness, <laughs> until we found our level. Our niche. Hmm. And, and what is that?
1: What's, what's your <laughs> typical case production?
3: Anywhere from 1,000 to 1,500 cases. Sometimes a little more. Uh,
2: You never know what the weather will bring you. In a
3: bad year, a little less. I I do two business models. One is the farming. I try to take care of the vineyard. The vineyard gives me what I'm allowed to get. (laughs) And the second model, business model, is our retail sales here. So if I'm short on some Chardonnay, which can get early frost since it's the first one out, I have a few vineyards nearby friends of mine that may not get hit with frost and so I'll try to pick up a little extra Chardonnay. I try to keep her with as much volume of wine that she needs to keep that business model running. The thing I would say that also was a change for me was that physically it's demanding and I think if it wasn't for the people, the friends that we have met, and the wine club people, I would probably have wanted to get out of this business maybe a decade ago. But because of the people, I don't want it to ever end. It's like this interview. <laughs> I'm having a ball with you, there <laughs> Likewise. Uh, I will be disappointed when it's over. When you say, oh, I'm sorry, we have to cut you off, Michael. <laughs> we'll give you the signal and I will respect that <laughs> belatedly and not enjoy it
1: <laughs> well talk about talk about these uh, special events that you have so you do weddings and other types of events here right what impact do
2: they have on your
1: business and and how how you interact with people
2: well tomorrow our back room is set up we are going to be doing um, a Riedel varietal tasting we have over 40 people coming and they are going to learn how we, the difference that the glass makes in three different red wines. So we're very excited to have that. It's always a, a fun afternoon, and people are so surprised. And to me, that's the best part about it, because they make assumptions that, oh, the glass is the glass. And then when we sit there and watch their faces, it's it's great. We do it here in the Tasty Room a little bit, but tomorrow's it. The next step.
3: We do understand that because we first had the same skepticism. Right. I'm sure. And someone did the Riedel thing with us long decades ago and it was like, Wow, <laughs> this does make a difference.
1: And Riedel's not a sponsor of this podcast, but if they're listening no. and would
2: like to yeah. <laughs> <laughs> please well, give us a call. I was able last May, I was asked if I wanted to become a Riedel ambassador. And I really didn't know what that meant, and I was told, yes, you should. So I went and met George Riedel, uh, who's the 10th generation Austrian who taught us classes using many, many, many different glasses. And it was a fascinating experience and one that I won't ever forget. Um, Going through the airport with my box, with my three red glasses, the TSA man looked He said, have you been through here before <laughs> I said no but you're probably gonna get 20 or 30 more of these because you can't put that in bag right. so you just have to right. carry it oh yeah uh, you asked about other events we do we like to have weddings we have a building that we acquired a few years ago that's at the far end of the property and we call it the studio you try to think of a name that would be appropriate the woodshed didn't <laughs> <laughs> That we decided was not the appropriate name for a building for parties.
3: And two art teachers, the studio. The so studio it. works.
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, we just had a wedding in January, and thank goodness the weather was okay. I had a bride and her mom here yesterday for a wedding that we're having in May. The building was built in the 30s. It's very different, uh, and it's a... Just an, an extension of us here, I think. You know, Yes, it has heat and air, that's always the question. Do you have heat and air? Oh, yes, yeah. we do.
3: Yeah. <laughs> People, when they walk in, usually there's one word we hear, and that's, wow. And yeah. we tried to leave the inside exactly the way it was, and hmm. then worked Which, on the outside yeah. for insulation and new windows and everything. Mm-hmm. So The advantage it that we have of that studio for weddings is that it's not located where our retail operation is. Right, yeah. So the brides can come and the families can come in on a Thursday and set up. Mm-hmm. And after the wedding, don't worry about Let's taking down. the door
2: and come back tomorrow.
3: Come back yeah. on the next day and clean it's up. It's
2: been fun. Hmm.
0: So what do you think the future holds for North Carolina wine?
2: So to me, if we can get people to stop thinking that it's going to be sweet and just try it. That will help our future tremendously, because that, I think, people make an assumption, and we know what that means. And we'll go places out of the country, out of the state, and when you say you own a winery, oh, really, in California? Right. I will say, no, we're, we live in North Carolina. You have wine in North Carolina? Yes, we do. And the more we do this, and the more people are aware that we have a vibrant, growing industry, with a variety of different kinds of grapes to please many different palates. I think it just will hopefully keep going.
3: Being involved in the industry here, it surprises me when I find that some people in North Carolina still think that North Carolina white is sweet. I'm not surprised Mm -hmm. when I'm in another part of the world or another part of the United States when they think that. But I forget. That a lot of folks still don't know about the new uh, North Carolina wine industry, even though it's a 20-year-old thing, and it is predominantly very good quality dry red wines. There's some nice uh, ports being done. Uh, there's some good dessert wines being done, and, the and there's industry- some
2: beautiful vinifera as well as muscadine wines being done. Yes. You just have to find them and find what suits your palate.
3: A few people have said, oh, no, I can't stand muscadine. And Mm -hmm. I said, well, you haven't tasted the right ones then. There are some very good muscadine wine being made in North Carolina. Mm -hmm. And I once, years ago, we were at a conference and somebody from another state said something about the muscadine. And a few people sort of reacted negatively. And he said, look, he said, we're all winemakers here. A good winemaker can make good wine out of anything—tomatoes, dandelions. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but Eddie was right. If you are a good winemaker, you can make good wine out of whatever you're given, because you're conscientious and you know your craft. And that's what's going on with the muscadine industry and the uh, bunch grape, which is vinifera grape. That's us.
1: So we're kind of coming to the to the end of this interview. Sorry, Michael. Um, what 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 is something that you want folks to know about you and about Hanover Park? What's one the one thing that maybe you want folks to know?
3: That we are open on a regular basis from eleven. Someone asked us one time, "How's everything going?" All of a sudden, I sounded like the newscaster because we say it so. Often. Well, right now
2: it's February, so we are twelve to five Wednesday through Saturday and Sunday one to five. Excuse me. And during regular season we are eleven till six, Wednesday through Saturday. So come by, bring a picnic.
3: And Sunday one to (laughs) five. He likes to do that.
2: (laughs) (laughs) And just come and relax. You're not, even if you live 15, 20 minutes away, you're not home, you're not doing work, you're not doing laundry, you're here just to ha- hang out and have a good time.
3: We have these picnic tables under the old oaks. <clears throat> there is a gentleman, I think he's an attorney. He will come out sometimes during the summer, get a little bit of wine, go out and work. And at some point, he said, Well, I can get work done. My phone's still here if I have to be contacted, but I'm not interfered with by the normal people mm-hmm. flowing in and out of around in our in his office I so so it's a place that people come to relax and we try to help them relax that's perfect it's very well said thank
1: you. so thank you again for joining us today pleasure having you here yes
3: yes this is fun we look forward to many more conversations Thanks. I will say that I think the industry is going to benefit greatly from what you are doing and there are others that are doing similar things and I want to thank the two of you for contributing to the grape and wine thank industry you, of North Carolina. And being
2: such advocates for all yeah. of us. Thank you. We appreciate that so it's much. A all
3: right, thank Plus you good guys.
1: <laughs> Thanks again. That concludes our second episode of Cork Talk. Thanks again to Michael and Amy Helton for hosting us.
0: We look forward to future visits with them.
1: And if you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to the podcast and leave us a rating and a review.
0: This really helps others find our podcast.
1: And don't forget to follow us on social media. You can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter, at NCWineGuys.
0: Until next time, and remember, a cork only talks when it's out of the bottle. Cheers!